Alrighty, cool. Let's uh, finish up Marcuse today, hopefully. It would be embarrassing if I didn't, because I already listed that it'd be two parts, but, you know, we'll see. So we'll be starting in the second half, specifically chapter 5, Negative Thinking, The Defeated Logic of Protest. So there's, uh, I think I can, can contextualize this with some of the other thinkers in the Frankfurt School, notably Adorno, um, who was not in favor of protest or like student action really at all. Um, he thought that that was kind of a um, a symptom of uh, kind of positivist, you know, enlightenment um, uh, movement of history that wasn't exactly um, going to propel us in any kind of good way. Uh, in fact, it would have simply been, you know, a replication of the same kind of culture industry that he repudiated so heavily. So for him, this kind of protest that Marcuse would um, avow would, is, you know, didn't interest him at all. So Marcuse is really, you know, opposed to any kind of thinking in favor of action. Hence, you know, his, uh, you know, being at the forefront of much of what was going on with the Quiet Revolution and all these other kinds of uh, cultural movements in the mid-20th century. So he begins this chapter, at least in the, at the end of the first paragraph, by saying that the world of immediate experience, the world in which we find ourselves living, must be comprehended, transformed, even subverted in order to become that which it really is. So then he continues into the next paragraph, stating that in the equation, reason equals truth, which equals reality, which joins the subjective and objective world into one antagonistic unity. Reason is the subversive power, the power of the negative that establishes, as theoretical and practical reason, the truth for men and things. That is, the conditions in which men and things become what they really are. So they do not depart then from a kind of ontic reality, that is, um, a tangible, you know, material truth, but that there is, there can be some kind of intervention at the level of reason which is, you know, up for negotiation and, and challenge and, and so forth. So this can have a whole slew of effects. And he says there has been a tradition in, in, in Western thought to um, uh, prescribe or to reduce this whole equation to a kind of objective uh, reality or kind of transcendent empiricism or materiality. Uh, so he says that the totalitarian movements were one such example that tried to intervene, tried to alter the domain of reason, you know, coming at it in a very logical uh, way, in order to alter reality, to alter truth to some extent. So tracing this conflict, that is conflict between reason and reality, uh, he traces this back to the Greeks, of course, where there was um, these distinctions that always played themselves out to some extent. So he says, and this is on 124, um, uh, actually, I don't want to read that one. Uh, he's, he says that, uh, such a noob, um, 
Inasmuch as the struggle for truth saves reality from destruction, truth commits and engages human existence. It is the essentially human project. If man has learned to see and know what really is, he will act in accordance with truth. Thus, epistemology is in itself ethics, and ethics is epistemology. So then he continues, to the extent to which the experience of an antagonistic world guides the development of the philosophical categories, philosophy moves in a universe which is broken in itself, two-dimensional. Appearance and reality, untruth and truth are ontological conditions. So philosophy is then a dialectic process. So in the age of the Greeks, of course, you know, we just think of Socrates and Plato mostly, um, there was, uh, they appreciated reason over, you know, experience, right? What people experienced in the world was of no real interest to them. Uh, all of those things had to essentially be issued in order to arrive at the kind of the, the truth of, of the world. This antagonism also takes on another form. Marcuse says this comes up more into the transition into Aristotle, uh, but then these two terms, that is reason and reality, come to be embodied then by logos and eros. So this is drawing upon much of what Marcuse says in his other book, One to, um, uh, Eros and Civilization. But without getting too much into that, he's, uh, here he says that logos corresponding to the domain of destruction, that is, you know, um, reason or, tr or truth, and eros belonging to the domain of the subjective, uh, he says that these two are always uh, combating one another, at least in the domain of two-dimensional thought. In the case of the Greeks, though, where he's focused up till this point, uh, we are confronted with a problem, and that is one that I think everyone is privy to, that is the existence of slaves. So how do slaves figure into this? Well, for Marcuse, slaves not belonging either really to the domain of um, logos or eros, eros being a kind of enjoyment of life, um, kind of willingness to, or not a willingness, but a, uh, an appreciation of, you know, beauty, of, of love over hate and whatever, uh, and logos being reason. Because there are classes that are denied either of these positions, it would seem as though there is uh, a barrier around the dialectical configuration of eros and logos. So at one time, one might be committed to believing that that is a totalizing framework, kind of pure total dialectic, but in fact, it excludes many classes or many, many groups. So it would be wrong then, Marcuse says, to say that this is simply a condition of the what he calls the pre-technological age or the anti-technological age. It is in fact, it can be traced into today where people, or many, many, many people, uh, are burdened with, by, with, the, uh, with satisfying the necessities of life, that they are unable to engage in either of these other spheres, or to properly belong to that antagonism necessary for the realization of a kind of state of equilibrium. So in Marcuse's words on 129, if truth presupposes freedom from toil, and if this freedom is, in the social reality, the prerogative of a minority, then the reality allows such a truth only in approximation and for a privileged group. And how does this come to be? 
Well, for Marcuse, he says that there's almost there's a transition, of course, between Plato and Aristotle. So with Plato, he he's a little more generous, saying that there was a kind of ambiguity with these two terms. They would that is logos and and eros. They would fold into one another, negotiate, uh, and even their own kind of ontologies were up uh, up for more debate. Whereas in the transition to Aristotle. Marcuse says that something changes. There is then the development of a kind of commitment to uh, a logos that presupposes or anticipates the development of technological rationality. So that is under the, uh, he says on, this is 137, under the rule of formal logic, the notion of the conflict between essence and appearance is expendable, if not meaningless. The material content is neutralized. The principle of identity is separated from the principle of contradiction. Contradictions are the fault of incorrect thinking. Final causes are removed from the logical order. Well-defined in their scope and function, concepts become instruments of prediction and control. Formal logic is thus the first step on the long road to scientific thought, which of course Marcuse repudiates. So tracing this development, so from Plato, where there, of course there were slaves, so something bad was going on, to the Aristotelian notion of formal logic that um, Marcuse identifies to today. I know it's three kind of arbitrary points to focus on. Um, it is important to note that they are not, uh, they do not emblematize the same modes of domination or oppression. They are rather different. But rather, to get around this problem of kind of poking at the epistemological variations that might have caused this, uh, Marcuse says that they all fall under the rubric of domination. So pre-technological and technological modes of domination are fundamentally different. As different as slavery is from free wage labor, paganism from Christianity, the city-state from the nation, the slaughter of the population of a captured city from the Nazi concentration camps. However, history is still the history of domination, and the logic of thought remains the logic of domination. So whatever form it takes, in whatever capacity it is exercised, it still belongs to that general formulation of the domination of one group by another group. This Aristotelian logic, then, how it motivated the development of the domination today, or the form of oppression that we see today, was in its abstraction of, the, of things like materiality in favor of a kind of formal logic, as Marcuse identifies it. But what also followed was um, a kind of hyper-individualism beginning to emerge. So with people being able to contemplate the world, not through their being, experiencing the world, opening up the possibility of, a, of kind of epistemic very, or like kind of phenomenological um, possibility or difference or anything like that. Instead, things were given over to a kind of logic uh, or a kind of uh, capacity or things could be realized or understood through contemplation, it opened up the door for a kind of individualism that had yet to be seen. So we get a good summation of this on page 140, where uh, Marcuse says, for the scientific subversion of the immediate experience, which establishes the truth of science as against that of immediate experience, does not develop the concepts which carry in themselves the protest and refusal. In contrast, Dialectical thought is and remains unscientific. So that's indicative of the Platonic realm. Uh, remains unscientific to the extent to which it is such judgment. 
and the judgment is imposed upon dialectical thought by the nature of its object, by its objectivity. So the, this object is the reality in its true concreteness. Dialectical logic precludes all abstraction, which leaves the concrete content alone and behind uncomprehended. And thus, dialectical logic cannot be formal because it is determined by the real, which is concrete, and therefore open up to, to a kind of um, to developments, to changes, to transformations that formal logic in its, in its abstract concreteness, which seems like an oxymoron, uh, doesn't allow. So on a, as a kind of side note, many of these sentiments are very Baudillardian. Like Baudillard would, uh, you know, he drawed upon Marcuse a bit. Uh, but this idea of getting rid of an antagonism between two different poles permeates throughout Baudillard's work. So this um, rendering two poles into one that is a kind of like perfect equilibrium or like a, as he, as he might say in his later work, a kind of air-conditioned uh, perfectibility, which would uh, foreclose the possibility of negation, of contradiction, of, of challenge, of subversion in favor of this, this singular type of thinking. But I digress. All right, so that propels us here into the sixth chapter from negative to positive thinking, technological rationality and the logic of domination. So as he begins it, it seems obvious, he says that in the social reality, despite all change, the domination of man by man is still the historical continuum that links pre-technological and technological reason. So a little bit more specifically, this domination take is uh, realized under the economic relations of the time. So the limits of this re rationality uh, and its sinister force appear in the progressive enslavement of man by a productive apparatus which perpetuates the struggle for existence and extends it to a total international struggle which ruins the lives of those who build and use this apparatus. But there are other things going on, and that is a, a kind of relative improvement of the standard of living. So for Marcuse, and this really feeds into um, the kind of culture industry aspect of this, people are satisfied with their what they have. That is because the system delivers the goods, and people do not want to give those things up. So instead of you know moving in a direction that might point to a more uh, a greater degree of emancipation, people are instead satisfied with you know getting their car, getting their promotion, or getting you know whatever other thing. So all of these objects, I think, are a relic or kind of an extension. That's my cat is destroying things. Um, this kind of optimism with these bad things, a cruel optimism, as Lauren Berlant would characterize them, I think, um, is an extension of this kind of logical formulation coming out of Aristotle. That is the rendering positive, or going from a negative thought, so negative thought being the domain in which there was an antagonism between two different poles, to this positive thought where everything is essentially, you know, good at, good as it is. The system is right because the system gives me X, Y, and Z things. Therefore, there isn't even the possibility to conceptualize the negative, at least not in the historical sense, where even people who live in the worst conditions, like let's say people given over to slave labor, are you know sometimes absolutely happy with it because you know they've been put in a situation where 
under the kind of global schematic of capital, they have to earn money to live. Therefore, in their minds, earning 25 cents an hour is better than earning nothing. So that is how the kind of the logic of one-dimensional thought coming from Aristotle to today permeates throughout the world and instills the idea of positivity through it, or into it, I should say. What is more, the development of science, at least how it manifests itself today and having the roots in the formal logic of Aristotle, um, moves the world towards a supposed nat neutrality, sorry, naturality, uh, where he says that on 147, then the precarious ontological link between Logos and Eros is broken. So that's the end of the dialectic. And scientific rationality emerges as essentially neutral. So what nature, including man, may be striving for is scientifically rational, only in terms of the general laws of motion, physical, chemical, or biological. Interestingly, this rendering objective of the world is done so by uh, there being retained, at least to some extent, an antagonism between the objective and the subjective. But as I think we'll get into, the subjective is, is an illusory one. So paradoxically, however, the objective world left equipped only with quantifiable qualities comes to be more and more dependent in its objectivity on the subject. This long process begins with the algebraization Christ, of geometry which replaces physical, visible geometric figures with purely mental operations. It finds its extreme form in some conceptions of contemporary scientific philosophy, according to which all matter, matter of physical science tends to dissolve in mathematical or logical relations. So there could be a number of reasons for this. Number one, I would say, uh, it'd be difficult for physics or for any kind of um, logical mode of understanding the world to be considered uh, to be legitimized if it doesn't refer back to some kind of real things. So it demands to some extent the existence of a kind of materialness, a kind of materiality that is still susceptible or still a part of the old formulation of negotiation or anything like that in order for it to retain its value as abstraction, of, as truth, anything like that. Um, so in this way, the antagonistic point of the material, of the real, or anything like that, is only designated as such to affirm the other position. So it is not an equal dialectical configuration as a proper dialectic would, would need. It is, in fact, the uh, predication of one upon another. So I think that this is proved on um, page 151 when Marcuse says that, um, in other words, theoretically, the transformation of man and nature has no other objective limits than those offered by the brute factuality of matter. It's still unmastered resistance to knowledge and control. To the degree to which this conception becomes applicable, and effective in reality, the latter is, a, is approached as a hypothetical system of instrumentalities. The metaphysical being as such gives way to being instrument. Moreover, proved in its effectiveness, this conception works as an a priori. It predetermines experience. It projects the, exper the direction of the transformation of nature. It organizes the whole. So all of this 
can be said in other words a little later on, on page 155, where in a de paradoxical development, the scientific efforts to establish the rigid objectivity of nature led to an increasing dematerialization of nature. So a de-reality of nature. So whatever kind of formulation that, or whatever kind of manifestations of uh, the human, of nature, of anything that might develop in this day and age or that might exist, we have to be, at least I think this is what Marcuse is getting at, we have to be careful not to be subscribing to the logic of scientific rationality that has created these kinds of uh, forms of nature or of the human. So these are not pure principles in their own right, but they are those that have been designated, affirmed, and essentially created by the technological apparatus. So one such example on page 157 um, is that while science freed nature from inherent ends and stripped matter of all but quantifiable qualities, society freed men from the natural hierarchy of personal dependence and related them to each other in accordance with quantifiable qualities, namely, as units of abstract labor power, calculable in units of time. So this really speaks to the Marx, uh, Marxian idea of fetishism, where we come to take the kind of relations we exist in today as being natural, whereas, of course, Marcuse wants us to get out of that mindset. So one example of that that I would think of would be uh, people saying that competition is a natural thing. Look at animals. They are always competing, always fighting for dominance. Capitalism, emulating the, that kind of innate human desire, therefore is a natural system in that it communicates a kind of naturality of, of humanity. Of course, that idea fails to take into account a number of other things that occur as well in the, uh, as far as community goes, as far as other kinds of relations go. So what it does is it takes the logic of what we perceive to be as the um, dominant group in the case of animals, you know, the alpha males fighting, and then we extract that and we generalize it to humans. Is it whenever people make uh, um, allusions to animal life or like animal experience to justify human action, it makes me want to rip my hair out and throw my hair at something because they, you know, you can cherry pick any animal that does the thing that you want to affirm and then go from there. Of course, simply disavowing all the other kinds of animal relations that go on don't know why I'm so focused on animals, uh, but I think that that example illustrates what Marcuse is getting at here with the construction by careful selection, by rendering, by choosing what is considered quantifiable through these processes, determining and altering, or in many ways, just simply constructing what counts as being real. So it is no surprise then that Marcuse tells us on 158 that the scientific method which led to the ever more effective domination of nature thus came to provide the more, sorry, the pure concepts as well as the instrumentalities for the more effective domination of man by man through the domination of nature. But, Marcuse, how do we count for variations in science? So it would seem as though 
you know, he's painting this with a very broad brush, saying that, you know, I found a kind of totalizing uh, thing going on here, and if we, you know, get at the root of that, we can fix our system. Well, to to some critics, I think they'd, they'd be rather facile and reductive. But as he says, um, uh, where does he say this? Here, I have my notes. Ah, yes, on 165. So the continuous self-correction of science, the revolution of its hypotheses, which is built into its method, itself propels and extends the same historical universe, the same basic experience. It retains the same formal a priori, which makes for the very material, practical content. So then he continues his thought on the next page. No matter how one defines truth and objectivity, they remain related to the human agents of theory and practice, and to their ability to comprehend and change the world. And again, to continue on with a long, kind of chopped up quote, uh, the point which I am trying to make is that science, by virtue of its own method and concepts, has projected and promoted a universe in which the domination of nature has remained linked to the domination of man, a link which tends to be fatal to the universe as a whole. So any kind of change that we might be able to note in science is more a superficial change than a kind of real change. Because science, no matter what kind of hypotheses are done, still operates under the basic uh, a priori formulations of observation, deduction, um, kind of principles of, uh, I guess observation is a good term to encapsulate that, that are part of a system of domination that takes the other to be a quantifiable point that can be reduced to codes and numbers and anything like that, effectively stripping it of its ambiguity, of its contradiction, of its antagonism. So no matter how science changes, it still relies on these fundamental principles. So how this essentially manifests itself is that in the social world, all things being reduced to science lose their kind of mythical quality. So they then become real. So the construction of reality is to some extent uh, where at one point it was part of the an dialectical antagonism. It is now something that is used or constructed by the jackals of science and capitalist exploitation to convince people of their being real to some extent. And then people are that much easier to control. All right, then here we go into chapter 7, The Triumph of Positive Thinking, One-Dimensional Philosophy. So how does the system do this? How does it, um, I guess, posit the triumph of positive thinking? Or how does he posit this? Well, he says on 172, that philosophic thought turns into affirmative thought, or I assume a synonym, that's a synonym for positive thought. The philosophical critique criticizes within the societal framework and stigmatizes non-positive notions as mere speculation, dreams of fantasies. So I think to be kind of vulgar and simplistic about it, we can also reduce this to the distinction between so-called hard and, and soft sciences, or between like the humanities and, and hard science, whereby being able to always, or perhaps not always, by, but by relying on a method that extracts or that is able to give people conclusions, to, to solve problems, to be reproducible, that's a big thing, it is therefore in the service of the kind of movement movement of history, right, in the right direction. Whereas the other approaches that are no less 
um, valid, at least in my mind, like the humanities or, or theory or anything like that, uh, are considered to be um, illegitimate. They are or illegitimate. They are not worth anything because they don't give us anything because they only, you know, open up more questions, right? At best. Uh, but the people who tend to say that tend to forget that, you know, the kind of science that we have today hasn't existed for very long and societies and history moved very fluently without them. But, you know, I, I digress. So positive philosophy or positivist philosophy, Marcuse tells us, uh, sets up a self-sufficient world of its own, closed and well-protected against the ingression of d disturbing external factors. So I want to jump ahead and then I'll come back just to kind of um, summarize uh, what he's trying to do here. So on page 193, Marcuse says that under these circumstances, the spoken phrase is an expression of the individual who speaks it and of those who make him speak as he does, and of whatever tension or contradiction may interrelate them. In speaking their own language, people also speak the language of their masters, benefactors, advertisers. Thus, they do not only express themselves, their own knowledge, feelings, and aspirations, but also something other than themselves. So this uh, is certainly an extension of his, in the earlier chapter, one of the earlier chapters, talking about language, how we have things like clean bomb or friendly fire or something like that, kind of oxymoronic terms that are intended to take out the negation, sorry, take out the negative from what would otherwise be a bad thing, like bomb, you know, we qualify with the word clean. Uh, so how language works in this way. So in this positivist philosophy, empiricism, he tells us on 187, substitutes for the hated world of metaphysical ghosts, myths, legends, and illusions, a world of conceptual or sensual, sensual scraps of words and utterances, which are then organized into a philosophy. And all this is not only legitimate, it is even correct, for it reveals the extent to which non-operational ideas, aspirations, memories, and images have become expendable, irrational, confusing, or meaningless. So those things that are negated pertaining to the ghosts and specters that he um, draws can then become commodified, right? Because they then take up the place of the supposed opposition to this rational system. So as he says on 190, the scientific approach to the to the vexing problem, uh, or sorry, I'll go back a little bit. Magic, witchcraft, and ecstatic surrender are practice, practiced in the daily routine of the home, the shop, and the office, and the rational accomplishments conceal the irrationality of the whole. It thus counteracts a truly rational behavior, namely, the refusal to go along and the effort to do away with the conditions which produce the insanity. So that occurs, I believe, by having the kind of scientific positivist philosophical apparatus in late capitalism opposing specific zones of, of being or of things which can then, in their being negated, be packaged up and resold back to the public as possibilities for refusal, like 
you know, to be really reductive, like punk rock, for instance, doesn't didn't actually do anything to the system. In fact, it really harnessed a kind of like Thatcherite movement, you know, to come in, uh, or the, the Reagans of the world, because it, through a kind of quasi-dialectical movement, strengthens the in-group or strengthens the kind of in-ideology that allows for that kind of uh, pressure valve subversion to exist. Now, what does this mean for the formation of communities? Well, Marcuse lays it out in an interesting way that kind of anticipates the development of echo chambers, where he says that, uh, and I'll read quite a bit here, um, in a three-step process, it goes as follows. To an individual project, the specific communication, a newspaper, article, speech, made at a specific occasion for a specific purpose. Two, to an established separate individual system of ideas, values, and objectives of which the individual project partakes. And then three, to a particular society which itself integrates different and even conflicting individual and separate individual projects. So this is on 197. To illustrate, he says, a certain speech, newspaper article, or even private communication is made by a certain individual who is the authorized or unauthorized spokesman of a particular group, occupational, residential, political, intellectual, in a specific society. This group has its own values, objectives, codes of thought and behavior which enter affirmed or opposed with various degrees of awareness and explicitness into the individual communication. The latter thus individualizes a separate individual system of meaning which constitutes a dimension of discourse different from, yet merged with, that of the individual communication. And this separate individual system is in turn part of a comprehensive omnipresent realm of meaning which has been developed and ordinarily closed by the social system within which and from which the communication takes place. So it forms a kind of autopoetic system. So a system closed in around itself that develops itself through itself. How many times can I say itself there? So this kind of closing off forms uh, the basis for a kind of acquiescence with what is going on because it gives the semblance of a kind of free choice, be belonging to something or belonging to something. So the task of philosophy in this in this domain is to uh, is to free thought from its enslavement by the established universe of discourse and behavior and elucidate the negativity of the establishment and project its alternatives. So thinking about like a, a kind of opposition to this linguistic uh, foreclosure of possibility, right? Where anything that one could say is already mediated by a system of control it is up to philosophy to some extent to wrest it from that position, kind of awakening this false consciousness. So on that, move into now, I think it's the third section, the chance of the alternatives of the book and the eighth chapter. So the historical commitment of philosophy. So this is Marcuse's plea against analytic philosophy, where he says that contemporary analytic philosophy is out to exercise such myths or metaphysical ghosts as mind, consciousness, will, soul, self, by dissolving the intent of these concepts into statements on particular identifiable operations, performances, powers, dispositions, 
uh, propensities, skills. So it is up to philosophy to recognize that these uh, philosophical concerns or objects of study, that is, uh, will, soul, self, and so on, are, in a sense, created by a system. They are not universals. So on page 204, he tells us that if philosophy does not comprehend these processes of translation and identification as social processes, i.e. as a mutilation of the mind and the body inflicted upon the individuals by their society, philosophy struggles only with the ghost of the substance which it wishes to demystify. So this extends not only to the abstract things like self and, and will and, and mind, but also to so-called tangible things like the nation, the state, uh, the British Constitution, the University of Oxford, England, things that are taken for granted as abstractions where people do not understand, or at least in analytic philosophy that he's uh, getting at, do not understand that these are essentially constructions, that we can't just speak of them as though they were totally accepted uh, universal truths. So what this leads to, or I guess this comes about on page 206, uh, where the disharmony between the individual and the social needs and the lack of representative institutions in which the individuals work for themselves and speak for themselves lead to the reality of such universals as the nation, the party, the constitution, the corporation, the church, a reality which is not identical with any particular identifiable entity, individual group, or institution. So such universals express various degrees and modes of reification. So thus, and he continues a little later, every established society is such a realization. Moreover, it tends to prejudge the rationality of possible projects to keep them within its framework. At the same time, every established society is confronted with the actuality or possibility of a qualitatively different historical practice, which might destroy the existing institutional framework. So like the uh, logic of, fetish, or, or of the fetish, these things come to be taken as natural, when of course they are kind of uh, uh, hermetically sealed in a particular epistemic, epistemic framework that can be hermeneutically dissected. So they do not, um, cannot be generalized to a broader logic, but only to a specific one. So these systems within any given framework then I think would correspond to the Althusserian ideas of ideological state apparatuses or repressive state apparatuses that serve the end in their perpetual self-naturalization, in their perpetual uh, rendering, creating, fabricating, commodifying truth. Uh, they end up affirming their own system. So pacification, he says on 220, free development of human needs and faculties. These concepts can be empirically defined in terms of the available intellectual and material resources and capabilities and their systematic use for attenuating the struggle for existence. This is the objective ground for historical rationality. So achieving this degree of uh, pacification is in the service of maintaining that system. So it is necessary for us to discern between these um, structural modes of um, domination that syrup or that veil themselves with uh, with a veil of freedom or the veil of uh, benevolence it is up to us to discern those from real modes of freedom 
So drawing upon Marx, he says that thus, according to Marx, the proletariat is the liberating historical force only as revolutionary, as revolutionary force. The determinate negation of capitalism occurs if and when the proletariat has become conscious of itself and of the conditions and processes which make up its history. Uh, this if is essential to historical progress. It is the element of freedom and chance, which opens the possibilities of conquering the necessity of the given facts. Without it, history relapses into the darkness of an unconquered nature. So then that propels us into chapter 9, the catastrophe of liberation. So the, um, the project of liberation has to be carefully realized. So whereas some people in positing, and I think they'd be really taking from Marx when they say this, uh, whereas some people would say that capitalism and all that it affords us is a, is a necessary consequence. There is a necessary set step to the realization of uh, communism. We have to be careful, and I believe this is what Marcuse is saying, we have to be careful not to simply associate the things or the goods that capitalism creates with progress. Instead, to the extent to which technology has developed on this basis, that is, basis of domination, the correction can never be the result of technical progress per se. It involves a political reversal. So such, uh, this, he, he says that this corresponds to a kind of technological fetishism, right, where technology is going to propel us into the right direction. Such fetishism has recently been exhibited mainly among Marxist critics of contemporary industrial society. Ideas of the future are om omnipotence of technological man, of a technological eros, etc. The hard kernel of truth in these ideas demands an emphatic denunciation of the mystification which they express. Technics, as a universe of instrumentalities, may increase the weakness as well as the power of man. At the present stage, he is perhaps more powerless over his own apparatus than he ever was before. So our project of liberation cannot be predicated upon the structural modes of oppression or the consequences of those modes of oppression, because that would only propel us into a greater degree of oppression. So the same occurs in many other domains, where as nature is something that has been created now by reason or by truth or scientific rationality, we have to be careful not to associate things like kind of natural human drives or anything like that with the process of liberation because they have always already been constructed by a uh, kind of scientific apparatus. So to justify that, he says, history is the negation of nature. What is only natural is overcome and recreated by the power of reason. So the metaphysical notion that nature comes to itself in history points to the unconquered limits of reason. It claims them as historical limits as a task yet to be accomplished or rather yet to be undertaken. If nature is in itself a rational, legitimate object of science, then it is the legitimate object not only of reason as power, but also of reason as freedom, not only of domination, but also of liberation. So that is how reason is so effective. It constructs false points that are tricks of the eye, trompe l'oeil, intended to convince us that they provide us with the opportunity to liberate ourselves. So where there is some kind of resistance is in the domain of art to some extent. So he says that like technology, 
art creates another universe of thought and practice against and within the existing one. But in contrast to the technical universe, the artistic universe is one of illusion, semblance, shine. However, this semblance is resemblance to a reality which exists as the threat and promise of the established one. In various forms of mask and silence, the artistic universe is organized by the images of life without fear. In mask and silence, because art is without power to bring about this life, and even without power to represent it adequately. Still, the powerless, illusory truth of art, which has never been more powerless and more illusory than today, testifies to the validity of its images. The more blatantly irrational the society becomes, the greater the rationality of the artistic universe. So what a kind of liberatory paradigm would look like would be uh, the elimination, he says on 242, the elimination of profitable waste would increase the social wealth available for distribution, and the end of permanent mobilization would reduce the social need for the denial of satisfactions that are the individual's own. Denials which now find their compensation at the cult of fitness, strength, and regularity. So that'd be an example of a kind of repressive uh, sublimation, right? Where people, their desire to be free or something, take it out in ultra-individualistic acts like, you know, weightlifting, to read him very literally. So people are much more satisfied with really messed up things like the... Um, accumulation of nuclear weapons and the slaughtering of millions of people but what they are not okay with is uh, they do not tolerate being deprived of the entertainment and education which make them capable of reproducing the arrangements for their defense and or destruction so this really getting at the kind of irrationality of the system where if capitalism as it exists today was rational everyone would have cars they wouldn't just destroy cars that were not sold. There, there's no logic to that. Uh, but capitalism does not have uh, a logic in this way, and that is why it kind of both posits and denies this uh, system of reason that Marcuse traces back. So this, moving into the 10th chapter, he starts it out by saying, the last chapter, the advancing one-dimensional society alters the relation between the rational and the irrational where because the rational can be determined by the system in which it is found, the things that seem so irrational to the development of capitalism, like the extraction of surplus labor for, that can seemingly go on forever um, from a finite source, become rational. They become the very logic in which we find ourselves uh, belonging. So there's very little movement in this system, or at least it doesn't allow for that because everything that it produces and all the kind of ideological uh, possibilities of liberation are guided and mediated by a system that is already predicated on the impossibility of escaping that system. So the impossibility of escaping from the logic of the accumulation of nuclear weapons, you know, escaping from the logic of hyper-individualism, escaping from the logic of entertainment, of general acquiescence. So I think for the you know, that's kind of what's going on here uh, in the, the whole book. Uh, of course, it's a good read. I would certainly recommend it to anyone. And there's a lot I didn't cover, obviously, because, you know, for the sake of time. And I don't like getting into all the different thinkers that, that authors bring up unless it's really necessary because it's it would take so long. But with that being said, I hope I did it justice. 
because there's there is a lot that I had to kind of gloss over, especially some of the other things pertaining to language that uh, were just so heavily that relied so heavily on other philosophers that I didn't feel like I could really jump into. Uh, but on that note, for those that actually listened, take care and let me know if I missed anything that is crucial or that people should know about, you know, how to add it here yourselves.